Welcome to Out of Rich Darkness. I'm Camille Savage-Kroll. And I'm Elena Chia. We're both professors at the University of Music in Freiburg, Germany. In this podcast, we reimagine the ways in which we learn and make music and explore how it can be part of a holistic, healthy way of being in the world. invited out-of-the-box thinkers and pioneers in the music world to speak to us about their lives and creative processes. In addition to appearances on the podcast this season, our guests participated as coaches in a new course that we designed and taught together at the Hochschule für Musik Freiburg. calls Steph Richards a rising force in avant-garde jazz, and the New York Times refers to her as an emerging maestro of extended technique. She has collaborated with the likes of John Zorn, the Kronos Quartet, Yoko Ono, Laurie Anderson, and even Kanye West. Steph's work is driven by a curiosity of how listeners interact with music and what sensory variables are open to experimentation. Manifestations of her curiosity often result in unexpected orchestrations, such as works for scent, carousel, choreographed ensemble, underwater percussion, as well as 600 found objects, to name a few. Her latest album, Super Sense, is an incredibly fascinating collaboration with the multimedia artist Sean Raspit, and was born from Steph's inspiration to explore the ways in which other senses affect the act of listening. I met Steph many years ago when we were both students at the Eastman School of Music. And on a personal note, it has been really special reconnecting with her. And I've been really struck by her spirit of generosity, which is a quality I feel is so valuable for artists today. In our conversation, we speak about concerts as spellcasting, which includes taking things into consideration like the temperature of a room. We discuss what can be learned from commercial music, and why building a rich community is so essential, as well as the idea that you are what you eat as an artist. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Hi. Hi. It's nice to meet you, Elena and Camille. It's so good to see you after all these years. Oh my gosh. You're gorgeous. Very long time. Same. Very very good to see you. (laughs) Yeah, well, if it's okay with you, uh, we can just um, jump right in. Before we start, could I just get like um, a sense just so that I know like a little bit about the podcast, but also like Elena, like what what's what do you do? What kind of musician are you? And Camille, I know you're an amazing vocalist. And so um, if there's anything to fill me in on, so, you know. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So I'm a cellist and ah. I have a string quartet. I have played in orchestra. Um, I don't do that anymore. Now I'm Camille's colleague here, the Hochschule. And ah. I, I had my first orchestra job, uh, when I was 24 and three years later, oh. I quit to just go hang out in LA with my brother and learn to play electric cello and improvise so <laughs> right on yeah 
And it's been kind of a love-hate relationship with the establishment since then. Yes. Okay, cool. That's it yeah. in a nutshell. And, <laughs> and that's something we've kind of bonded over um, since Elena started teaching in Freiburg as well, is that we uh, kind of have the mutual need to um, change or carve a different path. And I have no idea which direction this might go, but basically we decided we need to put ourselves together and start making things happen that we want to see happen and, and not just um, put up with the status quo. So this podcast yes. is also a little tiny part of that. Wow. Um, and uh, we've got lots of ideas, but this is one of the one of the first steps that we've taken is to start having our conversations be conversations that we share with other people. Yeah. Right. Awesome. And you're certainly an inspiring person to start with yes. for this next season. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank yep. you. Well, we're all in the exact same boat. So um, yeah, I'm glad to be here. This is yeah. great. Actually, would you mind if Dying? I started? Because you two know each other. Yeah, go for it. And I was listening to your music today, Steph. And I have to say, I'm already a huge fan. Oh. It's, it's really such sensual and rich music. And I, I really felt like I was, I was delving into a world, different worlds, listening to your music. And actually, my first question is totally vague, but how does one become Steph Richards? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, <laughs> we could go in so many directions. Um, well, I guess, can I just go back to the word that you said, sensual? Um, because I take that as a, as, a, as a high compliment, because I, for me, I think a lot about um, how we hear and how we feel music and how we transmit um, sound to one another and um it's not just through our ears i really i believe we hear with our skin you know when we're playing with other musicians we're listening with our bodies more than anything else and when we're performing to an audience we can hear our our audience we can feel them right like any wonderful performer you know that they're listening to the music that's and the vibration that's being generated from the audience member and so um that's just something that I, I, I think about a lot. And um, my latest project that I did was really experimenting with, um, yeah, how, how sensual really <laughs> can, can music be? How, how many senses can we really actively engage um, or maybe be aware of that we are engaging? Because we probably are already engaging a lot of senses without really realizing. So yeah, I think <laughs> I'm really interested in like, in how we hear each other and how we how we create music together and I just I think our bodies are so intelligent and they're listening and learning so much all the time um, and our ears have have just a, a very little bit to do with it actually mm. yeah. yeah and that's something that I'm missing so much right now um, in these corona times because I've listened to quite a bit of music and I'm sure we've all listened to a few online concerts and some are great and um, and, and some are cobbled together and there's some really interesting things, but, but what I miss is that experience of listening with more than my ears. I've, yes. I've actually really physically noticed what a difference it makes to be in the mm -hmm. same room with someone and what acoustics do with your body. And it's something I've thought about a lot, but especially now, um, what our bodies, what a difference our bodies make, what a difference a room makes and how little we think about this in good times. Um, yeah. And I guess to follow up on Elena's question, 
how did you start to become aware of the sensual side of music and listening with your body? Was this something that um, was always a big part of your experience of music? I mean, you I have to say you just uh, showed us a picture of you when you were a little girl sitting at the <laughs> piano singing. And I'm wondering, maybe in connection with this question, is there something in going back all the way to your childhood? Do you have memories of experiencing music or even making music that were that were very connected to the way that you create music today? Well, I think my childhood is probably very similar to a lot of people, but in the sense that when when I was learning music as a young child, you know, I was singing in school and dancing and clapping and um, that all of the body was involved in 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 the act of, of creation. And um, as I got older, of course, um, you know, going to a music conservatory, it, it gets a lot more sort of specifically tuned to your 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 technique. But even there, I mean, I'm talking to Camille, who I went to school with, and I'm getting these really vivid memories of our uh, the concert hall at our conservatory, and the kind of the the magic that a stage can create, that a setting can create, right? That's just something that I've, I'm always thinking about. And even at Eastman, you know, when no one was there, I, I would sometimes sneak in and, and practice, you know, um, in the little corners of the of the, the concert hall. And I just think that the space, like like what we're talking about, the space is just such an important part of our creation. And, you know, we, we cast these magical spells, not just with the sound that we're making, but the actual atmosphere that we're creating. And... Um, I think that these ideas started to become a lot more clear to me. Actually, when I graduated from school, I was living in LA at the time um, and I was doing some commercial work. I was playing backup to uh, Kanye West, the hip hop, um, the guy who's gone, kind of gone cuckoo now, but um, not president, not president Kanye West. Not pre- exactly. <laughs> This was this was pre pre his uh, election bid for sure, um, but but that was one of my first um, professional experiences. I was fresh out of school, and I was thrown into these venues that were huge, right? And just like makeup was plastered on, and costumes, and lights, and choreography, and like stage design, and there were so many elements that went into putting on these shows that were so like absolutely thrilling as a performer, but I think also, I I think for the audience as well. And so I think I just, even though maybe musically, it wasn't always the most uh, challenging because we kind of played a lot of similar um, sets, but I learned so much about kind of how, you know, how to cast the spell. How do you, how do you create the fantasy for an audience and, I never want to take for granted my experience playing, you know, playing commercial music and learning from that. I think it really affected me. And then when I moved to New York, like most, you know, most kids who moved to New York, you know, we had no money and there's no possibility to, you know, put a put on a really fancy show, but still working with all the materials that we had at hand, even in a small arts venue, um, I really started thinking about, um, you know, the temperature of the room and like the lighting as best as I can. And then also what kind of materials are the artists working with? Um, could we play, could we just choose a material like water and see what's going to happen if we're going to all, ex- you know, working with the same material and the same um, feelings. So 
anyway, that's I kind of went a bunch of different ways, but um, I think that those early experiences out of school were the probably the biggest influence on me in terms of considering how how magic is made, right? <laughs> that's so cool. I mean, a lot of people would kind of look down on that sort of commercial playing, especially in conservatory, the world of yes. conservatory where we're supposed to be doing serious things and the things that we've studied. And yet, uh, from your example, we can see that when you go in with an open mind, then it becomes um, another way to nourish yourself artistically. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think I think that we like I'll say at the same time, I, I always tell my students to be considerate of of the space that you're um, putting yourself in from a musical perspective, because I do believe that you are what you eat. If you're playing a lot of music that you don't care about or that's not really um, moving you, then it is I think your ears will kind of become dull and you'll get your heart will become dull. Right. So. Uh, I think it is definitely a balance, like going into opportunities with an open mind is an important thing, but also being considerate of, you know, what's the, what's the benefit and what's the cost of, of um, putting your, putting your body in, in these environments. And so for me playing with Kanye, those, every show was quite different during the time I was working with him. We do TV work, we do live work, you know, we do like small um, rich people parties work. <laughs> Um, <laughs> there were all sorts of like every every venue was a little bit different. And so for the and it was a very short time, I was about half six months that I was doing this. And I definitely felt that, you know, I felt at a certain point that, you know, there isn't there is a bit of a limit to for me uh, in that situation. And so that's when I decided to move to New York and um, uh, just, you know, take take a chance to see what new things I could find. So. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. Like, like you said, Elena, like it's, it's, it's a challenge to, to, to be open when you don't know what to expect. But um, yeah. Well, I feel like you are someone who is always up for a challenge when I look at the kinds of things that you've done. Do you feel like when you're going into a new challenge, do you feel... Um, like you're taking a big risk? Is it scary? Or how have you allowed yourself to think so far out of the box? What is your what is your process when you're taking on new, new things? How do you even decide what to do? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is this is a question. I know that those are a lot of big questions. But I think a lot of people would look at your career. And it's kind of coming back to the question Elena just asked and think, that's amazing. But how did she get there? And I know you've done a lot of really interesting projects. You've collaborated with a lot of people. So the question maybe is also, where do you get these little sparks of, of inspiration, the ideas? And then how do you have the, is it, is it the right word to use to, to say courage to, to go for it? I mean, you certainly have not had a safe career. <laughs> I mean, none it's, of us really that's do, true. right? That's but, the thing. It's yeah. I don't think it's safe anywhere. No. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not these days. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think honestly, I every every opportunity, every kind of when I look look kind of at the the path so far, I think I was just doing my best, and I got lucky along the way. Um, you know, I know that sounds that's not like exciting, but um i i think that well let me tell you maybe like what i believe about um our community and maybe that will help inform the Definitely. idea of yeah courage and and mm -hmm. um 
I, I believe that if you hold other people up, they will hold you up as well. And so when I moved to New York, I didn't have that many perform. I had like nothing, barely, barely any gigs, but I went out to see other people's performances as much as I could afford to. And just being there in the audience and, and com connecting and letting the musicians know how much I appreciated them. And then, you know, you develop these, these, uh, these bonds with people and, um, and then it's just sort of like, it's like a, an avalanche, right? So um, I think it really all comes down to um, us supporting one another. And I don't expect, I don't, I don't know what to expect from an audience, but I know what to expect from my, my own music community, you know, is to, is, is for them to support me and for me to support them. And, mm -hmm. and that, I think it's throughout history. It's always been that way, actually, that the mm -hmm. artists have helped one another. Um, right. Yeah. I think that's also so beautiful. It ties into how you were talking about your audience and about listening to the energy they give you and listening to the space and reacting to the space. This is also an aspect of the musical ecosystem. Yes, yes. Right. That's absolutely true, yeah. And and so I'm dying to ask this. I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but were you the only women in the only woman in the scene when you came to New York? Or also um, you've been doing commercial work? A commercial work not not as much because there's definitely like uh specific choice you know people specifically want to have women on stage like Beyonce you know she has an all-female band and stuff like that um but definitely in terms of uh well when I was at Eastman you know even even when I was in school um and then coming out into the just out into the scene definitely I was I I, I was almost always the only only woman playing and um I think the biggest challenges for me were earlier on because I had to figure out how do I um how can I find a sense of equality when um, <laughs> when I'm not feeling it from other people? How do I choose for myself to feel equal, that I have an equal voice, that I can contribute as much as my other colleagues, you know, in the trumpet section, for example? Um, and it was really hard. I think um, for, for my undergraduate, that was probably the most challenging time for me was to try to understand how can I fit in? How can I be friends and, 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 and support other people you know what a great yeah. question how can mm. i support other people i think I not know, many people right? would would say that actually in, under these circumstances they'd probably be thinking how can i get people to support me yeah but maybe yeah. that is the secret of your success that you started from the other way around yeah i i think i mean i think in that, addition to yeah. being an awesome musician <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's true. I think that like, um, especially like, okay, let's just as, as a female musician, if you're the only one, and if you if there's um, people are not as comfortable having you be on stage, or if there's if it feels threatening for whatever reason, you know, that's, that's a great angle to come at it. It's just that like, hey, we're all we're, we're a team, like I'm here to, to make you sound better. And like, you know, I think that's, <laughs> and I, I have to say, there have been a lot of challenges on, I, I do, I know I face challenges that my male colleagues have not, and I know you guys mm -hmm. have as well, absolutely, you know, the things that we have to, there may be this word courage, we have to, to find courage to move through certain situations, you know, I heard someone, I can't uh, remember their name um, at the moment, but they had said that privilege is something 
you only recognize if it's if you don't have it mm -hmm. right so we're all nodding because like we understand what the privileges of our male colleagues and they might not um, mm -hmm. but at the same time that hasn't i mean there have been like heartbreaking moments in in my career um but at the same time i think that i found a lot of um community in working with experimental musicians of musicians that are contemporary and new music and that we all have a goal of moving music forward we all want to evolve this thing together and the music is more important than you know than all of the other politics around it mm -hmm. so i have found that working in the experimental community and that could mean jazz or indie rock or uh you know in the classical more coming from the classical scene um i think being with musicians that are looking to push things forward has always been a, a welcome community for me to be in mm -hmm. you know about your music one thing that struck me really about i think everything that i heard that i listened to so far is that well first of all i have to say when i heard avant-garde jazz and extended techniques on the trumpet it was absolutely not what i was expecting when i heard your album <laughs> <laughs> because that conjures up these pictures of like, okay, me having to sit down and concentrate really hard to understand anything. And it was absolutely not that it's, it seemed so organic. Mm. And also, so it had such a narrative quality for me. Mm. Like everything that comes out of your trumpet, it seems to me like it's something that needs to be said. And it's also mm. a way of telling. Is that, does that make sense to you? Is that how you think of it? That's so funny you say that because I don't, uh, I mean, maybe ex not explicitly narrative isn't something I, I think about, but I'm definitely like interested in the idea of saturation and sort of like setting the stage, even from a musical perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm curious what music you were listening to specifically. Was it from the Super Sense? I did listen to your Super Sense album and a couple of um, the one before the Neon the neon lights, the more jazz. Yes. yes. Yeah. 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 So I think um, with Super Sense, especially because we were working with smell, that that was that was part of the composition. Um, that creating these these saturated sonic like textures and these these sort of like juicy like things that you could almost taste. Um, that was definitely a goal of mine in the studio and all of the musicians, you know, bringing their own ideas and extended techniques and um, letting themselves be overwhelmed by by what they're not just what they're hearing from the other musicians, but also what they're smelling. But in terms of as, as a composer and as an improviser, um, I'm very concerned with structure, but I'm always trying to challenge what structure really can mean. And I'm always interested in what is communicated to the musicians like we all interpret notation like there are tendencies right when we see a graphic score there's a tendency to kind of be literal about the the images that's like one example there's there is there is a tendency for most when we see that a line go like this we go whoop, right <laughs> or i didn't do that very well there we go oh my gosh <laughs> fire her she's off the gig oh. <laughs> but anyway i'm i'm always really i'm sort of everything's always an experiment you know if i compose music in a specific way how are the musicians going to interpret and, and react to that um you know 
if we introduce introduce scent, like how is that going to change how we're playing and how we're thinking of things? Um, and sometimes it's 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 uh, successful the experiments, and sometimes it's not. Like the challenge for that the music with smells was we we learned in the studio was that scent stands still, right? When you smell something, it's one thing, and it it has maximally it can have seven seconds of kind of like a you know, that's like the the decrescendo that we can smell. <laughs> and there might be a few elements inside in those seven seconds. But once it's over, that's that's it. Everything after that is a memory of wow. the smell. Interesting. And so in the, yes, it, it, it was fascinating. That. I had, that's me neither. Yeah. <laughs> and so in the studio, here we are um, improvising with this information. And we all had so, to kind of, oh, let's go ahead. Just so, back up once for somebody who maybe has not completely understood what we're talking about. Oh, so yes. For your current album, Super Sense, you collaborated with a multimedia artist who created sense, ambiguous sense, if I'm understanding yes. correctly. I've, I've ordered the album, but I have not gotten oh. a scratch and sniff uh, sense yet. I'm yeah, very I can't excited wait to... about this. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to smell it now that I've heard it. Yeah, but can, can you... Can you just, uh, did I, did I explain that correctly? Yeah, that's okay, exactly so sorry. it. I didn't want to interrupt you, but this is, this is the, the project we're talking about, this collaboration with, with this artist who created Sense, especially for the record. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And so while I was composing music, I'd sit down with him and he, he doesn't read music, but I would say, you know, here's the um, structure. Maybe here's like the emotional tones that we're going for. Maybe here's the texture this is a groovy kind of funky peppery kind of a vibe <laughs> this other one you know like this has a lot of complexity to it and this other one might feel very dry and and simple like we, i was kind of describing music in in abstract terms and then so he would go and and cook up these scents to to complement um or maybe even to be a bit of a counterpoint to um what was happening musically and then in the studio um, it would say in the score, you know, at specific moments, like, you know, open box number two for the pianist or <laughs> wow. the drummer, like open box number four, you know. So it was very sort of specifically laid out wow. in how they were to um, interpret the music and the, the scent, like all of the structure in the studio. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but then so to come back to that earlier point that the challenge with that experiment was that scent stands still and music has to move forward. I mean, you both our improvisers like you know that we when once you start with something right even if it's moving slowly there's always some sense of velocity to it unless it's a really not uninteresting set of music or something <laughs> but no i'm joking like music it has to push forward always and so that was definitely a roadblock that that we had to figure out how to deal with in the studio so not all experiments are totally successful but a lot, they always reveal something, something new to me. So, yeah. Yeah. That's a really interesting point. Cause I was thinking when you said everything is an experiment, everything that you do that uh, to me, that presupposes a high level of just, first of all, trust, and then also mm -hmm. the acceptance of possible failure yeah, or possible disappointment. Let's not go that far. Um, do you find that that's something that's, I mean, it seems obvious, but in the experimental community that that's something that's embraced, like we're going to do this and it might not work. Yeah, definitely. I think that that's, that's, 
I mean, I feel like that's almost expected that there has there that sometimes it's not always it's not always amazing and perfect, right? Um, but at least it gives context to the really good stuff <laughs> to stand out. <laughs> but the idea of failure, I mean, I, I most concerts, you know, when I get off the stage, I'm thinking that it probably didn't go very well. But the the thing that <laughs> helps me to kind of be okay with it all is I I know that I in the moment when we're playing, we're we're giving all we have that's all we're doing the best that we can in that moment and whether you like it or not that's what comes out of our bodies right that's the music that we make and so I've, I'm at peace with that that I know that when I'm on stage I'm doing I'm doing the best I can in that moment and so I think that's really helped me to accept you know sometimes that that shameful feeling you get when you walk off stage and you're like oh was that terrible but at least nope, I've never been best. there <laughs> What's she talking about? <laughs> but I will say something, and I I, I know um, because Camille went to the same school. I think with as one thing that really helped me was when I got out of school, I didn't fit into a certain community, and in some ways it was really hard. I never fit in with the orchestral players. I never fit in with the jazz players, but I think because I didn't fit in anywhere it helped me actually feel very free to make the music that I, that I can make. Mm. And then I let it fall wherever it's going to fall. Because when we're in school, we, we kind of get put into these tracks, right? Absolutely. And God I forbid if we played more than one instrument, oh my gosh. <laughs> <Yeah. right? laughs> or had more than one interest in life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. I love the idea of being freed from having to be anything by by not really fitting into any particular niche you were free to then find and make your own community and and pursue things that you probably wouldn't have even had the idea to pursue if you had maybe fit in neatly to one of those mm. boxes or already formed communities I think that's such a powerful message for our students and mm. for young musicians, just to know if you don't fit in now, it's kind of like in high school. Mm. <laughs> if you're not one of the popular kids, don't worry. It's not real life. <laughs> and it can be a huge advantage. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I like um, think that um, we're seeing an evolution in education I, I hope, but I know that there's certain schools and like, I know if you're both teaching at the Hawk School, like obviously you're trying to push these ideas forward and help students feel liberated, liberated to create what they need to create, but also responsible to, um, to move things forward, right? I think when I, for one school I went to, when I, when I graduated, they said, you know, one in three musicians will go on to perform. And so you might consider mm -hmm. arts administration. Camille's laughing. <laughs> you were there. <laughs> It was a terrifying moment. Um, <laughs> and then I, I, I went and I did a grad degree at a very experimental school in LA called uh, the California Institute of the Arts. And when I got there, they said the same thing. They said, there's no jobs in music, but the only way to make it is if you carve your own path. That's the only way you'll make it. And I think I really took that to heart. And I've, and I've seen it in, in my own students now, seeing them go out into the world. And I think that, uh, like playing it safe, which we know is not safe either. But um, the the traditional the traditional routes are extraordinarily difficult, and 
I also, I think that we're responsible for more than, well, I guess I'm being a little bit polemical here, but I think that a musician is responsible for pushing music forward. It's up to us yeah. to do it, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. it's, it's yeah. each of our own task. Yeah. Yeah, and to put yourself into it. Mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest thing that I'm still trying to learn actually at this point, you know, to not um, fit into what's already there, but to ask what I have to contribute. Yeah, because at the end of the day, no one is ever going to make the music that you can make, right? Nobody can play like you. No one can compose the ideas exactly the way you will. That's what I tell myself, at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a, a really good, um, a really good talk to continually have with yourself. I think. It's... Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering along those lines. I mean, you you mentioned how in your grad program they told you you have to carve your own path. And I'm wondering, do you Concrete think ways there that are... institutions of higher learning can support and encourage the kind of career that you've had? And I don't mean to, to do exactly what you've done, but I mean in terms of going out and making your own path. Mm-hmm. I do, I think it's, possible. I think that empowering students to be curators is a really important idea that like, it's not up to them to wait for someone to call them for for a gig, but that actually they're the ones that might consider producing a very small music series, you know, at, at their venue down the street, or even, in, you know, in these COVID times, like think like exactly what you're doing, where you're connecting with people and you're getting conversations going, right? Like, this effort that you're doing is exactly the type of um, like you're being role models to students for thinking about like how do we how do we build a community how do we hold a community up how can we empower one another to feel that we we get to have the conversations and call the shots and we don't have to hope that somebody more experienced or uh, you know presenter <laughs> schmancy presenter even though we all know most presenters are actually musicians also that they all started in music most of them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So anyway, I think just like empowering students to think and understand that a career in music is completely dependent on um, being able to support and and feed a, a community. Mm, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is a recurring theme. I think it's so important and it's such a good thing to think. I mean, I remember my education, we were all just in our practice rooms at Juilliard and oh, yeah. just no thought of supporting each other you were lucky if somebody came to your final recital (laughs) and the thing is there's just phenomenal musicians right like just like the talent that's oozing from the the, each each practice room and the irony is that I've met so many people who were at Juilliard with me I've met them in later years in Europe and of course they're amazing people and we got to know each other here but it was somehow not possible in that atmosphere Mm-hmm. And what a shame, you know, I mean, of course, it was also my fault. It was it was the fault of each and every one of us for not going out of the practice room and saying, wait a minute, what's going on around around me down the hall? Yes. And what could we do together? Right. But then again, you had teachers and and concerts to put on where you, you know, you were what was on your to do list was get really good at A, B, C, D, E. And there was nothing assigned to you that was like, make something with somebody else. You know? Yeah. <laughs> right. 
Well, that brings me kind of directly to my next question because I'm wondering, um, you've collaborated with some really interesting people um, and also some of my musical heroes. And oh. I mean, the, the list is, is long and, and really interesting, but um, I know that you've worked with people like Laurie Anderson and Yoko Ono and John Zorn. And, um, and that kind of blows my mind. But then you've gone also and done these interdisciplinary collaborations with artists and all different kinds of people. And I'm wondering what makes a good collaboration and how do you find those people that you can make art with? Ooh, well, <laughs> I think um, the collaborations that are that like go well, and it could be my personality, but when um, I'm working with someone who is completely um, excited about what they're doing, and it doesn't have to be in like fun, happy, excited, but it could be like a like determined excited as well. But like base, maybe I'm kind of thinking a different word maybe the idea of is is committed like that there's an intention that's deeply committed to the to the idea that's i think always been the most fruitful collaborations yeah where i just feel like working with someone who's who's open and flexible to you know what the possibilities could be but at the same time they have a really clear idea of what they want because it makes it a lot easier to communicate and create something together um, I'm thinking about like one of my favorite collaborators is um, a, a choreographer actually, and his name is Mark Dicciazza and he's he's a he's just just like absolutely gets he he choreographed Asphalt Orchestra, this chamber ensemble that wow. I that I played with for many years, and then he helped me with a, a smaller well it's actually a much larger project. It was just a one off project, but where we played for 400, 400 people, four hundred musicians. Um, were choreographed and, and making sound in a big football field. But um, <laughs> wow. I think like to be to be open, but also really, really committed and, and not be afraid to be passionate. Are, you know, I really loved working with collaborators like that. And you mentioned Laurie Anderson. I think in the two, I think I've worked with her twice, both times, like she was very open actually, like really, really open wow. and so willing and genuinely responsive like with so much respect and gratitude and and wanting to basically learn and hear from me you know what what i thought and what i what i could how i could help and um, wow. at the end of the day i mean i learned so much from both of those performances oh, yeah. um, which were two separate things but um yeah and wow. i think the other thing is the opportunities i've had working with these really incredible collaborators and some of them really well known and some of them not Part of it also comes down to being, I think, in a location where there's a lot of, mm. where all these people live, right? Like yeah. being in New York City helped me connect to David Byrne and Yoko Ono and Henry Threadgill, you know, just simply because we all, <laughs> at, at, you know, in some way we all frequent the same concert venues and and not that like I'd run into David Byrne <laughs> necessarily <laughs> you know, at the coffee shop, but actually, you know, that collaboration was with David Byrne and, and St. Vincent. And I did actually run into her at a bar, you know, a couple months later. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I think like that uh, location is a really important part. And for you to be in Europe where everything is so interconnected and there's so much like thriving art life and musicians that, that, are, that are actually thriving, I think is, is a really wonderful place to be actually. 
I'm like, can you please? I want to move there. Uh, <laughs> come on over. <laughs> yeah, we need you. <laughs> Berlin would love you. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. We need to get you over to Berlin and to Freiburg. Yep. Yes. When all this is yes. over. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. When traveling when it's all can happen over. again. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Make this happen. <laughs> well, that makes me think about how community just like in like in every religion also they say you, you can't be practicing by yourself you have to have the community that supports you mm. um, I don't want to compare music to religion but it's <laughs> you definitely have to have your community around you right and I was just thinking while listening to Super Sense this sounds like an album that to me it sounds like it really needed space and stillness to create that and then I'm imagining New York City, and mm. I'm also from New York, so <laughs> I'm thinking, wow, how do, how do you do that? And is it the community that provides, like, the, at least the community of the ensemble that provides that sense of space and stillness that you generate together? Um, I, I think so, because, you know, the, New York has this intensity that can either just, like, drain you or it can actually completely like lift you up and electrify you. And um, well said. <laughs> yeah, and it's sometimes it's both, you know, mm -hmm. in the same day. Yep. <laughs> um, one thing that I, uh, you know, I've, I've, I live in Southern California now, I teach at a university in San Diego, um, but I go back to New York as much as or I used to before COVID um, as much as humanly possible because what I always appreciate playing with musicians in New York is because there's it's it's so intense and there's like it's it's so loud like the city itself there's so much intensity i think that um there's a tendency for musicians when they play they they throw down there's no easing into it there's not there isn't any space right we just completely commit and there's blood on the floor immediately mm -hmm. and um and so i i i am thrilled and I, I love to work with musicians in New York and I know that's a huge generalization but I do think that the city does bring something to to that feeling and so yeah the musicians for super sense even if the feeling there's space um they were throwing down like we all th showed up in a studio with this wacko project <laughs> that I threw at them <laughs> and you know <laughs> and and they just completely everybody just completely committed to it you know, even so much so the drummer, he was in an isolation booth, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, the sense got too, like he was getting, he said he was getting high. He's like, I need a break. I'm high from the smells. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder, I am curious if the sense gave an extra level of intensity. You'd have to ask the other players, but I wonder. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it did. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah very curious but I love just this idea or this this sense of playfulness that you have hmm. when you approach music just this this idea of I'm gonna try it out and see what happens and have fun with it and not be afraid of maybe even things not working out the way that that um, I thought they were going to to be it's that sense of playfulness that I miss a lot of times too in mm. the in the conservatory mm -hmm. uh, world because there's so much pressure to be to be good, to be excellent, um, to be perfect, and um, and that it totally kills that sense of playfulness that I think we all had as children, 
when you described how you how you um, were singing and dancing and playing as a child. You know, there's so many facets to to being a creative person. And and when we look at like the people that we love and admire, like the stars of even in classical music, like like Yo-Yo Ma, like if there's like a absolutely playful, yeah. you know, and and he's he's so free. He's so yeah. free in what he does and 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 he's ready to throw blood on the floor if it means we're gonna miss a couple <laughs> notes, right? Yeah. But to be able to teach that, to be playing with that such abandon to teach that is is difficult because I think the way that we aggregate success in music is correct notes, correct, you know, pitch, <laughs> um, phrasing, articulation, uh, musicality, you know, I, we can aggregate that in some way. I've, I've seen <laughs> competitions well, before. Exactly. That's the list you have in competitions. It's yeah. Intonation, phrasing, interpretation, um, yep. yeah, musicality, and you, then yeah. you have to give a score. <laughs> yeah. And I think if we could teach our students new metrics, right? Like, yeah, like how much blood did you spill in that performance? <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, yes. I think I, I encounter this all the time, like every single day in teaching, that students think that they have to get it right first, and then they can be free. Right. right. And and that by not taking risks, they're doing the right thing to get things solid. And then they can add the artistry. And yet, I think in your playing, for example, I can totally hear that taking the risks has led to a broader spectrum of what you can do and greater virtuosity. And yeah. yeah. No, please continue. So, I didn't, thank I you. Was oh. <laughs> no, that was, I didn't know where I was going. <laughs> but just but, thank you for showing us that. <laughs> oh, but I think, I mean, improvisation, you, as a fellow improviser, you know, like it pushes us beyond what we could imagine because we're trying to react to this, to the space around us and the sound and the other players. We're trying to play sounds that we maybe don't know even how to execute. And so just the effort of trying, it pushes us into these new places of virtuosity and, um, you know, I'm not the most technically savvy porn player, you know, at all by any means, but like, I definitely play in very different spectrums of the trumpet that you might not usually find. And that's all, you know, from, from improvising and, and playing specifically for me, playing with drummers actually, mm -hmm. and um, learning a lot about how drummers play with sound and timbre, um, you know, with an instrument that doesn't necessarily have a melodic quote unquote, you know, like mm -hmm. capacity. Um, yeah, I think we also have so much to learn from from other instrumentalists, and and this is also something that happens a lot of times is we're we're so separated. You know, we have like <laughs> our music theory classes together, and then you know we play in certain ensembles. But really, this idea of well, how do you make sound, and what is it that you're listening to, and what do you like about this way of playing from each other. Um, there is there is so much to be to be gleaned. That's really interesting. Could you could you give maybe like a couple of examples of of things that um, that changed the way that you that you think about music from you mentioned drummers, but could also be other other musicians. Yeah, well, well definitely other musicians for sure. Um, I, I I'll take a moment to just like give um, honor to. Butch Morris, who is a, he was a very close mentor of mine. And he, 
he conducts, he, he, he since passed, but he came up with the language, much like sound painting, which you might be familiar yes. with. Over, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. So he and Walter came up at the same time, very close to each other with different um, languages. And so Butch's approach is extremely simple. There's very few um, gestures. And the idea is more learning and like, it's all about the sort of transmission of energy and ideas between an ensemble and a, and a conductor. But Butch and his, through him, Henry Threadgill, who's a wonderful composer and performer, and then Anthony Braxton, these are three people that had a huge influence on me and my playing and changed the way I, I think about how music is structured, how we interpret sound, how to, how to treat other musicians, <laughs> how to get people to commit um, when, when you're working with them. So those, I think from, from, uh, from like to give my respect and gratitude, those would be kind of the, the primary musical figures. Yeah. I think other things that really have affected my playing and are, I, I love to introduce this to and challenge my own grad students with this too, is thinking about materials, right? Like we, we have our, our instruments, but, um, you know, in the trumpet world, we have a bunch of mutes, which are really awesome and exciting. Um, but, you know, one day I was like, I don't have to play a mute. I could play something else. I could play with tinfoil or water or, you know, pour, play on a drum set and put the trumpet against a cymbal and, um, and a piano. And so there's like, I think that was a big <laughs> moment for me of realizing sort of thinking past my instrument and how right. can my instruments like interact with again, interact with the space, but also interact yeah. with different materials. Mm -hmm. Expanding um, your instrument. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, that's really great. Okay, so one last burning question from me, and this is purely selfish because I am a mother to a daughter who I hope is someday as as brave and trailblazing as, oh. as you are, and she is already. But I'm wondering, <laughs> are there things, you mentioned some musical mentors, but are there also things maybe that your parents did to support you? You said that after college, you started to find your own paths, but I'm, I'm wondering if there wasn't something in you from very early on that maybe gave you the, the courage to be Steph Richards. <laughs> You're so nice. I can like, <laughs> I can't answer that question. <laughs> um, I've, I've had wonderfully supportive parents um, and music was definitely not something that they um, really thought would, <laughs> they weren't really expecting it. And there was a time actually that they were, I think, a little concerned, you know, when I went away to school and, and they weren't sure how I was going to figure it out. But I think having uh, m music, my, I don't come from a family of musicians necessarily, but we do, um, everybody plays and sings um, instruments, like more like folk music and pop music. Cool. And I think I'm, I'm sure that that was a big influence was just that singing, but sort of for, for joy, you know, it was just part of, part of being in our house yeah. and, yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. But I do want to say something about, um, about motherhood because, you know, f you know, being a female musician, I think for a long time I was, um, I just felt like I needed to, to prove that I, I could hang, you know, prove that I could, I could play the hard stuff. And, mm -hmm. 
And in some ways, I, maybe I was almost afraid that having a family could interfere. But I, I as a as a new mother, my baby's only one, but like oh, it's added a whole new. Thank you. Oh, I just wonderful. I couldn't feel more like proud and honored to be a woman and to be a mother and to yes. have have like this be the body that I, I get to express myself in the world for all the challenges that we face as women. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, that we have so much power actually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, that's, oh, I'm that's so glad you said there. that. And I'm so glad that you are feeling that sense of empowerment um, also in being a mother, because I can, I could identify so much with what you just said. And also that sense of when is the right time and there never is a good time and what's going to happen to my career if I have a child and all of those things. But then having brought another human into the world and realizing how incredible my body is, like you said, um, and this is, this is something that, you know, we're so often in our minds and we're so focused on our ears, but but also the experience of becoming a mother changed me also in the way that I think about myself in the world and as a musician and what I have to offer. And I love that you, that you said that and that you're, you're feeling that sense of, of empowerment. That's amazing. And congratulations. Yes. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> and it's music too, right? Like it's, it's more music that like we're giving to the world. We bear yeah. children and that's this, this more, more beauty and more music that we're adding. So, yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much. Thank for you. Taking the time to chat. It's been us. amazing. Very you guys are amazing. I wish I could <laughs> live there so we could go have a beer, a socially distanced beer together. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's the next step. Yeah, yes. Well, yes. We'll, we'll have to get you over here sometime. I'm constantly oh. thinking once we've started this podcast, there's there's just this amazing network of incredible people. And, and we say this almost every time, but we've got to figure out how to get these people together. So really, um, yeah. it would be amazing to have you here sometime. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so who knows? Who knows what the future will bring? But, oh, well, I hope we get to hang and I get to play with you guys and I know your students are amazing. so lucky to have you as teachers and Same. pioneering trailblazing <laughs> yourself so thank you so much what a pleasure thank you for listening to out of rich darkness if you've enjoyed this episode please take the time to leave us a review so that more people can find us you can help us grow our community of positive change by engaging with us what's on your mind who should we talk to next We'd love to hear from you on social media.